welcome to the Art of Mathematics. I'm Carol Jacoby. Today we're going to be talking about how abstract structures, which are sort of like games with rules, can be used to explain things in the physical world, the real world, or in music, or in lots of different things. Before we do that, let's review the puzzle from last time. Find three integers in arithmetic progression whose product is prime. Now you're probably saying, what? A prime number is the product of only two numbers by definition. This is impossible. Well, the discussion last time might have given you a clue. Try negatives. The answer is negative 3, negative 1, and 1, whose product is 3, which, yes, is a prime. Now, several years ago, when I was a graduate student at University of California, Irvine, the math department had a contest to write a bumper sticker to advertise the department. The winning entry was, let math solve your problems. Boring and completely ignoring the excitement of pure math. My preferred entry was, the real world is a special case. I like the way it let the mathematicians thumb their noses at the narrow view of the physical scientists. Maybe that's why they rejected it. But it really speaks to the universality of mathematics, unconstrained by the real world, yet markably reflective of it. It's all about abstraction, pulling out the essence. Once we do that, we can work with it without any reference to the physical world. When we solve a problem, we can prove we solved it. An astronomer can't go out to a distant star, check a theory. Yet these mathematical abstractions often turned out to be useful models of physical phenomena. The whole history of math is a story of abstraction. The first abstraction was number. Quoting from the book Euclid's Window, anthropologists tell us that among many tribes, if two hunters fired two arrows to fell two gazelles, they got two hernias dragging them back toward camp, the word used for two might be different in each case. So it seems to have taken thousands of years for all these various uses to merge into a single abstract concept of two. Over the years, the concept of number was extended, getting further away from counting objects that you could touch. Zero. Negative numbers. Numbers that can't be written as fractions or decimals. Square roots of negative numbers. These were given names that reflected that they were outside of the normal physical world. Negative. Irrational. Imaginary yet they turned out to be useful in describing the physical world. In ancient Greece, Euclid abstracted geometry to a science of ideal lines and angles and perfect circles. In the 20th century, geometry was abstracted even more. They took Euclid's basic principles, well, all but that pesky parallel postulate, and freed them from the plane, opening up new areas of study and application. To give you a feel for what abstraction is about and how many different things an abstract mathematical structure can represent, I'm going to tell you about one called a group. A group pulls out the essence of some of our simplest mathematics, adding integers. A group consists of a set or collection of things, they could be real or abstract, and some way of combining them, which we call an operation. Here the set is the integers and the operation is addition. When you add two integers, you get another integer. Addition always stays within the group. This is called closure. 
Now, zero is in the group. It has the property that if you add it to any number in the group, that number doesn't change. This is called the identity element. And every number has a negative, and if you add a number to its negative, you get zero. This is called its inverse. So everything has an undo. Finally, it's associative. It doesn't matter where you put the parentheses in an addition. You can think of 2 plus 3 plus 4 as 2 plus 3 plus 4, which is 5 plus 4, or 9. Or you can think of it as 2 plus 3 plus 4, which is 2 plus 7, 9 again. So what exactly is a group? It's any set in operation with these four properties. That's it. Closure, identity, inverse, and associative. Here's another example. The non-zero rational numbers. Those are the ones that can be written as a fraction. And it's under multiplication this time. You multiply them together, you get another one. One is the identity, and the inverse is, well, the inverse. The inverse of two is one-half. The inverse of one-and-a-half is two-thirds, and so on. And multiplication turns out to be associative. So it's a group. But a group doesn't even have to look like math. Groups are useful when you're looking at transformations or symmetries. They show up in crystals, laws of physics, encryption, even music. There's something called the transformational theory of music, and it's based on groups. It's complicated, so I won't get into it. Let's take something simpler. I recently went to a workshop led by Adam Gilbert, a music professor at USC. He studies how the composers of early music enrich their compositions by playing with musical phrases, reversing them, flipping them, and putting these pieces together. For example, if you start with a simple phrase, you can reverse it. In other words, you're playing it backwards. Uh, you can invert it. You can play it upside down. What if you do one of these transformations followed by another one? Let's see. We start with the phrase. This is the same phrase. And then we reverse it. And then we turn that one upside down. So we've gone from this to this. It's as though we spun it around 180 degrees. Professor Gilbert calls this retrograde inversion, but I'm just going to call it spin. So what do you think? Are we combining these to get any more? Let's try flip, then spin. Okay, here's the original phrase. So flip it. Then spin that. This is exactly the same thing you get if you took the original phrase and reversed it. You can try some of your own. You'll see however you do, one after another of these transformations will always end up at one of these four. Leave it alone, reverse it, flip it, or spin it. Now, some of you might be wondering, what about transposing? You could take this phrase and move it up a fifth. Isn't that a new change? Yes, it is. But in this sense, we are looking only at the shape of the phrase. In math speak, we've modded out by the height of the phrase on the staff, considering the phrase is the same if they have the same shape. Spoiler alert, transpositions also form a group. So we have these four things we can do with the musical phrase. Let's start with a different phrase. We can leave it alone. 
we can reverse it, flip it, or spin it. We have this set of four things. That's our group. We can combine them by doing one after another. That's the operation on the group. Now, is this really a group? Let's check the four conditions. We've convinced ourselves it's closed. You do one after another, you'll never get anything new. The identity is the repeat operation because it essentially leaves everything alone. And each of these turns out to be their own inverse. Check it out. If you start with this, and reverse it, and then reverse that, you're back where you started. So we have inverses, we have an identity, and we have closure. All we have left to check is the associative law to make sure this is a group. And transformations like this applied one after another are always associative, so we're done. These four transformations form a group. Hey, this doesn't look at all like the integers. The integers are infinite, and here we have only four things. And in the integers, we had to be sure we threw in the negative integers, so we'd have inverses. And here we automatically got inverses because everything's its own inverse. But of course, the most obvious difference is that one is about numbers and one is about music. This shows groups can be about all sorts of different things. Now, once you have a group, you can add other structures to it. Say you can make a topological group. Professor Gilbert looks at putting these transformations end-to-end, -end, like a phrase, followed by its repeat, frere shaka, frere shaka, or, more interesting, followed by its reverse, and you get a musical palindrome. He's found many of these used in the ancient scores he studies. Now here's another group that shows up in music, the circle of fifths forms a group as you go from one tone to another. Start at C, one step takes you to G, one more takes you to D, and so on. After 12 steps, you're back at C, a much higher C, but of course you're back at C. And these transformations go one step, two steps, and so on, form a group. And this is called the cyclic group of order 12, if you're talking to a mathematician about it instead of a musician. Now, here's a completely different group the transformations of a Rubik's Cube. You've probably seen one of these. It's a cube made up of three by three by three smaller cubes. And any face can be rotated. The six faces are initially different solid colors. The object of the game is to get it back like that after someone has messed it up with a bunch of rotations, jumbling the colors. This group is generated by the basic moves, like rotate the top, a quarter turn clockwise, the group consists of all the transformations that can be made by doing simple moves like this in succession. Does this toy really give you a group? Let's check. It's closed since you do a bunch of moves. Then some more, you've done a bunch of moves in succession. So it's closed. Doing nothing is the identity. The inverse of a move is just doing it backwards. And transformations are always associative. Yeah, it's a group. The size of this group is a huge number. I'm not even going to try to read it. It's 20 digits long, but it's still finite, smaller than the group of integers. Group theory has come up with macros that can be combined to solve the puzzle and figured out what they call God's number. 
the minimum number of moves to solve it, no matter what kind of mess you start with. All the groups we've looked at so far are commutative. It doesn't matter what order you do things in. 2 plus 3 equals 3 plus 2. 4 times 1 half equals 1 half times 4. Reverse invert is the same as invert reverse on the musical phrases. Maybe you even wondered why commutativity wasn't included in the list of defining properties for groups. But now try this if you happen to have a Rubik's Cube and aren't driving. Twist the top, then twist the side. Remember what it looks like. Now put it back the way it was and twist the side, then twist the top. You'll get something different. You can see this by thinking about what happens to just the front upper right corner as you rotate the top a quarter turn clockwise, then rotate the right edge a quarter turn away from you. Unlike the other groups we talked about, the Rubik's Cube group is not commutative. Now, the first time I saw a multiplication that was not commutative, I was blown away. Multiplication of invertible square matrices is not commutative. Even if you've never heard of matrices, the point is there's a generalization of multiplication of numbers that is not commutative. This is an important distinction in group theory. Groups that are commutative for all possible pairs are called abelian, after the Norwegian mathematician Niels Henrik Abel, who has the honor of being one of the few mathematicians with something named after him that's in such common use that it's not even capitalized anymore. So the integers, the fractional numbers, the musical circle of fifths, and that little group of four transformations of a musical phrase are all abelian groups. The invertible matrices and the transformations of a Rubik's Cube are non-abelian groups. Some groups can get really complicated. I'm doing some work now on understanding and classifying infinite abelian groups. Many of these get into higher levels of infinity that make your head explode and have weird structures. Books have been written on this, and nobody has it all figured out yet. Okay, the moral of the story is you can have an abstract structure, like a group, that represents a lot of different things, numbers, crystals, music, Rubik's Cube. The nice thing is that whatever you learn about groups applies to all of them. It's often something in the real world. Yeah, the real world is a special case. Okay, now how about a puzzle? Two trains are on the same line, 60 miles apart, heading toward each other, each traveling at 30 miles per hour. A fly that travels at 60 miles per hour leaves one engine flying towards the other. Upon reaching the other engine, it instantaneously turns around and heads back to the other engine. This is repeated until the two trains crash and the fly is annihilated at the same time. How far does the fly travel before its demise? Repeating that, two trains 60 miles apart head toward each other, each going 30 miles per hour. A fly going at a steady 60 miles per hour flies back and forth between them until they all crash. How far does the fly travel? And we will have the answer in two weeks when we return. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a puzzle or something else that you'd like to share on the air, leave a voice message at anchor.fm slash theartofmathematics with hyphens or email me at cjacoby at jacobyconsulting.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.